You're listening to That's Infotainment with Morgan and John. I'm Morgan. My name is John. Hey, welcome to the show. It's been a long time, but we're glad you stuck with us. We're back. We are back. And what are we talking about today, John? We're talking about... Well, today is a very special edition of That's Infotainment with Morgan and John. We're going to be talking about uh, Quentin Tarantino's brilliant Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, as well as the 1976 Hal Ashby classic Shampoo. Which we just watched together. We just watched it just minutes ago. And that's not something we usually do. Not usually, no. I think we did it with uh, MAME. Yeah, I would like to do it with Maine. What it was it instead? It was, a, it was something where there was a joke about Maine, or, or it was a, something about... We watched something together. Put the blame on Maine? No, we did watch it at your house. Oh, oh, no, yeah, yeah, we watched Anti-Maine. Well, we watched Anti-Maine, yeah, yeah. isn't that what I said? Not, we watched the original 1958 version, not the terrible 1975, uh, 1974 version with... Lucille Ball, which is just called Mame. That's why I was confused. I see. Okay. But yeah, we watched Anti Mame together with uh, Rosalind Russell. That's right. That was great. I liked that one. Yeah, yeah. it was. It's classic. Apologies if it peaked there at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm aware of it. I turned it down. Good. Um, it's not worth re-recording. No, we're fine. We've got. We're gonna kill all that great banter. We'll move on. <laughs> yeah, we'll move on. Yeah, we'll move on from the disastrous Lucille Ball as Mame discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Well, John, how's life? Um, you know, I got laid off. Oh, you did? Yeah. From the Emmys? I did, yeah. Fuck, man. Did they lay off, like, a bunch of people? Well, the um, program that I was working on, which, when I was there for most of the time, was called the Archive of American Television, but is now called, I think, the Academy Foundation Interviews. Okay. They're um, scaling it back, and um, I think they're doing kind of less and less interviews each year, and they're going to start um, focusing on just preserving them. Uh, so I guess I guess you can say in a way that the project is sort of over. That's awful. Yeah. I mean, I'm I feel bad for you personally, of course, but also just I feel like that was su- that's such an important thing. Right. It is. Yeah. It is. And but you know, I was there for seven years, mm-hmm. actually longer because I uh, started freelancing for them in 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't know. I think kind of as a day to day, every day going in thing, seven years might kind of be enough. That's a long time. Uh, yeah, and yeah, I'm 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 not happy about it, but you know, I'll I'll find something. I'll when was that? This was uh um I think I found out like on July sixth. Oh wow, a little while ago. So yeah, I've just been hanging out. Have you? In do you that, have like in in the nyes? <laughs> how's your like? Do you have like savings and stuff? Or you? Mm, I did for a while. But and yeah, I have couple, to get some couple yeah. months ago. So if yeah. anyone's listening, has any kind of um odd jobs? No, I am. You'd be so good in like an archive. Yeah, I think That's so what too. I think. If there are any, if anyone needs an archivist, have you applied anywhere? Where are you applying? Um, I've basically been sending out um, resumes to temp agencies and stuff like that. But the things that I can do, it's just kind of weird. Like I, I've been looking at the um, the Motion Picture Academy Museum. Yeah, I think that would be if I can get a job there. But or like the, the they, Paley Center. Yeah, well, I've I used to uh, yeah, work I know, there. That's, I know. Um, but the Motion Picture Academy Museum, uh, it was supposed to open, I think, in June, but it keeps getting put off. So yeah, well, they're still building it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can it's, it's you something can of see, a white You elephant. can see why the progress has, <laughs> right. you know. I mean, it's you can watch it happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, man, that's heartbreaking to hear. I'm, I'm very sorry to hear it. 
Yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? It's part of life. Yeah. You know? Well, you just send me your resume, though. I mean, we should t- find, you know, some. I feel yeah, like yeah. I feel like you d- d- can do stuff more than temp s- shit. Yeah, not probably. that nothing's wrong with temp work at all, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, you, we should be looking for something yeah. kind of permanent for you. Yeah, I mean, I was just looking uh, for temp work just as kind of, um, you yeah, know, of a, course, a, in an a temporary thing. measure. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Where do you look for a job anyway? Like, gla- yeah, I don't gla- know. Glass I mean, door. <laughs> you do that, you know? Uh, well, I mean, it just seems like whenever you send out a resume, you just never hear back. I mean, yeah. the only time that you hear back is if someone kind of refers you for the job and you get in that way. Yeah. So, um, yeah, again, if, if anyone within the sound of my voice has any recommendations or juice, let me know. Yeah, I was... You Write know, us here at the podcast. I've talked about it on this show a lot, you know, being unemployed for like four or five months at a time sometimes, you know, and... Uh, you apply for these real jobs in between, right? Like my what I do, and yeah, literally nothing. Yeah, um, it's it's really weird. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think when I was unemployed like eight years ago, I remember sending out literally like two hundred resumes on my email, mm-hmm. and I think I got like three responses back. That's insane. Yeah, yeah. Often you don't even get a no. Right. Yeah, yeah. No. They just don't bother to respond. Yeah. Which totally. Which is crazy. But yeah. Um, but you're starting a new job soon, right? Yeah. I just finished. Uh, I'm. I'm having a good run right now, uh, which is uh, kind of strange for me. Uh, finished a, ne- a new Netflix show um, d- uh, as like a writer director uh, doing. We were like fixing it. Okay. We were like fixing a show, so I can't really talk about it. But right. Uh, suffice <laughs> to say that we we. So it was a big I was, disaster. I was Team B. <laughs> yeah. I was Team B. And you and so were the shows kind of already produced and you added to them, yes. or was it okay? Yes. Okay. And then yeah, they were done. Okay. And then second, so then this new thing I'm doing, I don't know how much I can say about it, but I will say it's Disney Plus, and it's the Jim Henson Company. Oh wow! Okay. Big deal for me, and it's uh, field directing. Oh, that's producing. neat. That's really cool. Yeah. Wow. So something sort of in the late night space. Oh wow. Yeah, I haven't signed an I haven't signed an NDA or anything yet. So, but I'm imagining that I'd pro- it's probably. Is it that thing secret. they do with um? The, uh, I got invited to this thing by Brian Lynch once, which was like a late night kind of. Um, it was sort of adult oriented, hosted by. Uh, a Muppet, but none of the like classic Muppets that you know. Kind of, I mean, I think they're all sold to Disney or what? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> but yeah, the Jim Henson Company. Have Have you spent time at the uh, the Charlie Chaplin? That's where I'll be working. Stuff? Yeah, that's amazing. Um, that's, oh my god! Isn't that the best part? So <laughs> like, um, yeah, I could give a shit less about you the show. Belong there. Uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> so yeah, my interview was there, and then I had another interview there, and then uh, got hired, and so I've had a couple meetings, and I start on Monday. Wow! And um, yeah, I'll be working working there. That's amazing. And the first thing I did was I, I heard that Chaplin's footprints are there. Uh-huh. Um, and he did the tramp walk. Right. Um, which I guess I had heard the rumor, and I don't know how true it is, that he wanted to do that at Grauman's or something, but it was like too long of a walk. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and so he did it there, or they he did it somewhere else, and they moved it there or whatever. But you can see it, and it's, it's kind of funny, but his feet are really small. That's really neat. Yeah. Tiny feet, huh? Tiny feet. 
You know, you go to Grumman's Chinese Theater, and I don't want to get off on a rant here, mm-hmm. but you look at the older actresses' feet, mm-hmm. I swear to God they were using fake shoes because there was, like, a thing about your shoe size. Yeah. If you look at those actresses' feet, they all look like children's feet. I, they might be. Like, Natalie Wood has tiny, tiny feet. Right. Joan Crawford did not have small feet. Greta Garbo's her, feet her are, shoes like... Are, yeah, yeah, what is going <laughs> <Yeah>. on? Um, <laughs> you know, the Vista has footprints and stuff, too. Do they? We, You know what we should do? This would just be fun to do is next time one of us is near the Vista or near Grauman's, let's take, a, let's measure. We're not going to do this, but we should. Yeah, yeah. You measure all the women's feet in front of the Chinese theater, and then we create an average female shoe size. Right. For, for there. <laughs> then you take the Vista. Right. Which presumably are real. Are real. Yeah, yeah. Is the thought. And then you do the Hollywood area at Walt Disney World. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and then we see. Well, yeah, because, I mean, I think the way they, they would do it was they wouldn't actually step in the cement. They would do their, like, they would have the ceremony. They would do their hands, and then they would take their actual shoe and Oh, press so they would bring in. smaller shoes. So I think so. You, I know, think you know what so. Mel Brooks did? His is great. I don't remember It happened recently. He, do, yeah. he put his hands in and added a sixth finger. <laughs> That's cute. Isn't that great? Yeah. Oh, I love it. You just don't think of things like that. No. No. And uh, Groucho's cigar is there. Oh, that's cool. He imprinted his cigar. His cigar. That's yeah. Great. You know, he smoked it afterwards. I don't know. It was probably too Are wet Are we sure it cement. was his cigar? <laughs> well, it was, well, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't seen Milton Burroughs. Hey, this is a family show. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, all right. Cool. Uh, yeah. So we um, were supposed to record a while ago. I can't remember what movies we were going to do. Oh, God, yeah, I don't remember. And you got sick. Yeah. You got yeah. a sort of fever, and then I got inundated with work. Yeah. Um, and then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, and I don't know about you, but I saw it, and I immediately thought of you. Oh, yeah, I was thinking of you the whole time. Same. <laughs> Same here. Um, you left the theater, and was just like, oh, I got to talk to John about yeah, it. So I, I was mean, very glad you emailed. Yeah. And uh, and that we're doing this. Yeah. Yeah, that was... Um... That that movie was a long time coming. I've I've heard him talk about it. The the kind of germination of the idea years and years ago. Yeah. And I always thought how cool it would be. And, right. And well, then and I, here it was. And I know. remember all the stuff about Tate's family and him and in the press. Right. And when it was announced and all the jokes about you know <laughs> exterior Sharon Tate's house night Sharon Tate. The N word, you know, <laughs> which is what is the, the big criticism of him. It's like, oh, he's doing a Star Trek movie, and it's like Picard, exteriors, you know. Is he spaceship. doing the Star Trek movie? Is that I, I, the rumors? He he wrote one. He said it's finished. Huh. I don't know if he, I mean, but he says he's only doing one more movie. But I don't think. But that's as a director. Yeah. And so I could see him writing or acting or doing whatever. But I wonder if even he did direct it, if he would not consider that sort of part of his official oeuvre, because it's kind of writing a uh, continuing story of an existing franchise. It's possible. Maybe he would consider that kind of out of, yeah. not counting as part of the 10. Sure, that's fair. But I mean, I, I hope that isn't true. I mean, I think he's sort of at the height of his creative powers at the moment. It's kind of what it seems like. This, yeah. this would have been a great movie to be his last. It would have been I, great. I felt like yeah. I was kind of blown away by it yeah yeah um well so should we go into that i don't or? know are we done with the banter i don't know there must be more banter i feel like we bantered <laughs> for like three minutes <laughs> there must be more banter 
Yeah, I don't I know. I mean, we haven't seen each other for ages. A while, yeah. yeah. You're up in Van Nuys. Yeah, and, and oh, you're dating the granddaughter of Peter Marshall, uh, <laughs> yeah, the host uh-huh. of Hollywood Square. She also has a lot of things that she's <laughs> great at as well, you know, that besides... Well, the thing I care about. I know, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, to be fair, I mean, I haven't met her. Uh-huh. I'm sure if I did, oh, that, love her. that thing would go right out of my head because she would overwhelm me yeah. with whatever else I'm she does. Ta- I'm so in love, it's insane. <laughs> Um, and it has literally nothing to do with her. <laughs> right. That doesn't, uh, that doesn't factor into it. Not at all. Um, yeah. So. But when I was a little kid, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I watched Hollywood Squares like every day, like uh-huh. when I was five years old, six years old, seven years old. Sure. Like, um, I remember I was upset like when school started because then that meant I couldn't watch Hollywood Squares. What day? And- was that on during the day? Yeah, there was a daytime version and a nighttime version. Both hosted by Peter Marshall? Both hosted by Peter Marshall. One was syndicated and one was on NBC, I believe. Okay, got it. So there was and, like the primetime version and yeah, the daytime yeah. game show version. And then later on... What was uh, the difference in guests? I imagine daytime, you wouldn't get as many people? Well, what they would do would be they would tape... Um, well, the the nighttime version, I think, was once a week. Okay. Um, and, and it was on at 7.30. It was like... When they started primetime at 7.30. Yeah. And um, they would tape six episodes. So you'd have the syndicated version, which would be five episodes. And then they would use those same people, but switch out one, like with a more famous person. Yeah. Like kind of more of a primetime-y type person. Okay, yeah. And that's how that worked. Okay, got it. Um, but I, I actually sent you a link to one the other yeah, day. Yeah, we uh, had, had not um, watched it. Yeah, with yeah. Uh, Mel Brooks. It wasn't a very good episode, as it turned out. It was but, just funny that you yeah. know, it starts it off and he's like, all right, go off, to, go after the coat. <laughs> he's wearing this like horrible 70s coat and he opens up the show and then turns to the panel and he goes all right now you can all make fun of the coat <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's great well um, i had the pleasure of working on hollywood squares but the revival okay uh in 1999 okay. and it was the version that henry, and henry winkler was the was he the head writer or showrunner what was he doing well, when it first started, it was Whoopi Goldberg and um, John Moffat and Pat Lee were yeah. the producers. Okay. And then four years into it, Whoopi left and she took the producers with her. Mm. And um, King World hired Henry Winkler to do it and they kept him on for two more years. Okay. And it was, and he, but he, so was, he, the, was, he was the producer. It. Yeah. He was the showrunner. Isn't that interesting to imagine? Because now he's sort of had this revival mm-hmm. where he is. You know, doing Barry, and I think he finally got a well-deserved Emmy. He got an Emmy, yeah, it was amazing. um, It's just interesting that there was this other period in his career when he was, like, producing and running stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, especially, like, a nighttime talk show, it seemed, or a nighttime game show, it seems like a strange kind of career uh, trajectory, but he did it, you know, really well. Of course. And I I remember he he would tell the story about... um, his interview with King World when he went to talk to them uh, about doing it. And um, he goes, and I walked in and they, I sat down and they said, why you? And I replied, why not me? And I was hired. Um, so, um, yeah, so. The, he, well, I, can't, he, I can't believe you even had a fucking interview. Yeah, it's ridiculous, right? <laughs> yeah. But his um he had a co-producer Michael Levitt, I think, okay. who was kind of I think more of the nuts and bolts kind of guy. But it got much better, I think, when Henry Winkler took over because he 
understood kind of the historical um yeah importance of it importance and yeah. embraced kind of the campiness of it sure. whereas Moffat Lee and Goldberg wanted it to be like modern comedy which I mean that's impossible with Hollywood Squares yeah, it's you know quips, it's one liners yeah. it's jokey yeah yeah so when Henry the new Winkler, match game's pretty yeah like that right exactly yeah um but yeah when Henry Winkler took over he he embraced kind of that that older sensibility which led to them doing old game show week okay which one of the thrills of my life I mean I don't know if you're familiar with the original match game but yeah uh, it was uh Charles Nelson Riley and Brett Summers were like the big attractions he was this big queen and she was like this crusty you know Uh Pill popping uh, lady, yeah. so they actually had those two share a square. Okay, so I got to meet them, cool. which was amazing. Yeah. And then backstage, I'm like sitting backstage watching the show, and um, this person sits down next to me, and I turn, and it's Marsha Wallace from you know Mrs. Krabappel, and I'm like, "What are you doing here?" Like, because I knew she like wasn't on the show that uh-huh. week or whatever. And she goes, oh, Brett, I just came to support my best friend, Brett Summers. And I'm like, oh, she's your best friend? And she goes, yeah. Um, Even though she goes, yeah, she's my best friend, even though she burned down my house. What the fuck? And I go, burned it down? And she goes, to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Rest in peace. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the... (laughs) Yes, um, but the interesting thing about Game Show Week was that they had Peter Marshall as the center square for that week, which mm-hmm. is really cool because he had never come back to any of the subsequent versions because um, they did it in 1986 with John Davidson. Yeah, um, and I think Joan Rivers was the center square for that, and then um, so he came and did the center square for a week, except the Wednesday episode, they pulled him out of the center square and put Tom Bergeron in there. And mm-hmm. he hosted it for That's the first right. time in, you know, whatever, 20 years, yeah. which was a lot of fun. And so Tom Bergeron hosted Hollywood squares. Then. Tom Bergeron was the host of the, uh, 1999 to, um, 2003 edition. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, and, uh, wait, did we, did we leave in the part about, Peter Marshall hosting for one day is that in there? Yeah, that's okay. In there. Cool. Oh, so everybody, we cut. Uh, yeah, sorry about out, that. The guys. mic dropped. Yeah. Um, so when uh, Henry Winkler came on board, they were trying to come up with promos uh, as to what they might do, and kind of un- unbeknownst to the um, creative staff, uh, he he kind of was trying to get away, you know, from the Fonzie image. Um, so me and my friend Swampy went in to pitch a couple of ideas. And um, for his first couple of weeks, he was going to have Ellen DeGeneres as the center square. And so um, Swampy's idea was that uh, he's in the promo. You see him walking down the hall of CBS Television City with um, Ellen DeGeneres, you know, talking about the production, what they were doing that day. And um, she goes, oh, yeah, and I I do have something important I want to bring up with you. And he goes, oh, yeah, step into my office. And they walk into the men's room. (laughs) because <laughs> his office was and so he just Funny. he stares at us for a second and he's like that's very good you're, you're very funny you're very talented you're very good i'm not gonna do it but it's very funny and then and then the other thing was um we were gonna have um ellen degeneres in the center square and the game's going on and then all of a sudden there's like an electric outage like okay. boo, like yeah. everything goes down mm-hmm. and um uh, Henry Winkler goes, yeah, exactly. Uh, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And he goes into Ellen Square and he hits the side of it and it all comes back That's up. great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's like, you know, 
that's very funny. You're very good. I love it. It's very funny. I'm not going to do it, but it's very funny. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great way to turn down a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, I don't know what else. I redid my apartment. Oh, yeah. It looks great. Thank you. And you've become something of an audiophile. Yeah, I really haven't been watching any movies or anything because I got a hi-fi. And I've been just kind of sitting in the middle of my couch and just listening to music yeah um yeah you had me um test it out it's really awesome um did it take you a while to find the right speakers did you test some out or yeah i tested stuff out my friend tim is really into it him and i just wrapped on a documentary sort of about record collecting and people who have sound systems and and things like that Uh um so we were just driving around california looking for this rare record and talking to people along the way about obscure weird records like um there's this record from japan called get on the wave which is uh uh the the soundtrack to your new breezy lifestyle and it was released by sanyo and it came with an air conditioner right so (laughs) it's from 1986 that's amazing and it's good like it's pretty good Uh and then uh there's another one um uh, our doc is about this record called plantasia which is electronic music for your plants to grow to. Uh-huh. And you could only get one if you bought a mattress from Simmons at a Sears in Southern oh California God. in 1976. Amazing. And now it's this cult record, you know. And so some of the prices on these things are like 200 bucks or uh-huh. bucks or whatever because they're fairly hard to find, right. at least out in the wild. You can find them in record stores and stuff. People have collected them. But um, coming by them is sort of rare. This other guy named Valentin Wallace, and uh, he released all this crazy stuff like through Xerox. Um, so just weird uh, promotional strange stuff i don't know if you saw the steve young documentary bathtubs over broadway i did not it's really cool you know who he is the letterman writer he's a yeah, famous, I've heard famous of him. letterman yeah. mm-hmm. writer um the doc's great it's not like ours at all ours is very low budget and we don't have an interesting person uh <laughs> as the lead of it um but so so wait, your doc is about obscure records or is mm-hmm. it about hi-fi systems? It's about finding obscure records. Okay. It's about it's a it's many a thing. Okay. Um because it obviously brought us to people who have a lot of records and those people tend to be folks who have like $300,000 sound systems. Right, right. And um if you thought mine sounded good, it's really another thing to like sit down and hear like John Coltrane come through right. $300,000 speakers. Yeah. It's like he's there. It literally is yeah. a very emotional experience. Wow. Um, yeah. And so part of it was that. Um, and But there's two sides of the same coin, which is like you can be very into records and not give a shit at all <laughs> about hi-fi bullshit right. audio <laughs> stuff. And so we, we tried to cover the gamut. Um, but yeah, it brought us to like these incredible places. We went to the John Coltrane Church in san francisco which is a black orthodox um i think it's episcopalian i'll mm-hmm. have to check but uh they made john coltrane into a saint and uh and they do all their services with a tenor sax wow and i was like that's I think, amazing i think i could become <laughs> religious you know um so, so they do like sermons based on his music yeah, or they, yeah. yeah and his like liner notes are really religious you know oh, like okay, they're very okay. religious and you know his story is really this like a great sainthood story he was totally addicted to heroin quit it you know like they they call him the saint of sound uh-huh, um, wow, yeah. because he you know 
ascended to another plane of existence basically through the use of his tenor saxophone so, yeah my, my college roommate was a big fan but i, I never bothered to learn about him so. yeah he's uh great yeah <laughs> yeah so why do you hate herp albert well so part of the doc was we were doing these challenges uh-huh. and uh there were a few different ones um where we asked people to you know if they had donated money to our kickstarter they were able to give us a challenge and one of the challenges came from Tim's very good friend, Teo Yang. And it was basically to drive uh, around listening to Spanish Flea by Herb Alpert and the Tijuana <laughs> bass or brass. That's the one that goes... It's the dating game theme. Yes. Jim Lang and the dating game. Yep. Jim Lang and the For two hours straight. Without a break, dude. No. Yeah, man. Because two hours is a long fucking time. Yeah. You know, I think if I think I've said this on the show before, but it is to listen to that song. Anytime, it's like holding your hand over a stove. It's almost the fucking whole (laughs) run of Lincoln. (laughs) I always measure time based on movies, and so when I drive around and I'm like two and a half hours out of Arizona or something, I'm like I'm a Lincoln away, and then if it's (laughs) ninety minutes, it's like that's a Men in Black. Wow. You know, that's a tight 90, right? <laughs> and so when we had to listen to Spanish play, 30 minutes went by, and I was like, just a men in black away. Yeah. It's a fucking horrible song. I, mean, I don't know if it's a horrible yeah, song. Yeah, like, it's of, not it's my bad. music. It's bad. Uh, trust me. You I don't, Have you listened to it for two hours before? Never. No. There are a lot of songs that I you think would be... You could listen to for two hours. Of course. But do you know who owned that um that studio that was the chaplain studio which is now the um muppet studio yes um fuck oh i'm just gonna come to me because i was just reading about it <laughs> well it's it was a&m records that okay. was owned by herb albert oh really yeah yeah his most oh i of- thought i was thinking i you know what i'm thinking of is coppola bought um he made Zoetrope Studios, which was uh, okay. Now Isn't that that's in Sunset. San Francisco, right? No, that's your Sunset. Okay. Sunset Las Palmas, I think. It okay. Is, is he, oh, right, he right. Bought, that's and right. that was Zoetrope, which is in the Player, okay, that Altman movie, right? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, it it was the A and M Records for a long time, from like probably the mid '60s to I think even when I moved here, it was still A and M Records. Cool. And if you watch the documentary on, um. The making of We Are the World. That's where they all arrive. You see them coming through, like oh, is the that Chaplin Gates. Yeah, that where they did that's it? where um, Quincy Jones said, "Check your egos at the door." Yeah, and um, no one did. No one did. <laughs> no one listened to <laughs> Especially him. Especially Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson. Prince. <laughs> Prince is really funny in it, and Bob Dylan is really funny because Bob Dylan never learned the words, and then yeah, the words. Yeah, but then they just and then Prince. He's like sucking on a lollipop the whole time, like not doing anything. It's very funny. <laughs> Yeah, check your ego at the door. But yeah, anyway, um, Herb Albert, I think, uh, got like a lot of his money and notoriety from you know being a record producer and sure. owning A and M Records. And I mean, he's still alive. Is he? Yeah. Oh, okay, I didn't know. He's that. out there. I hope he doesn't hear this. You know, who else? I, everybody keeps telling me to watch the Motown doc on HBO. Everybody's saying it's great, and Smokey Robinson's still alive. Wow, yeah, and he looks great. Huh? It's crazy. You know, what a career, like, Jesus Christ, some of these people, there are still yeah. legends around. This is why we need the Emmys thing. I mean, it's I know amazing, it's a different yeah. business, but Christ, we need things like that. Yeah, I agree. You can't have every, like, Smokey Robinson thing be some fucking BuzzFeed, you know. <laughs> Smokey Robinson's top ten favorite, you know, ice cream joints in Philadelphia. 
<laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, great. Maybe wish somebody had asked him about the business. <laughs> Whatever. I don't care. <sighs> what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Uh, should we take a little break and then go into uh, Once Upon a Time, or should we just go into it? Should we not break? Should Let's we just, just go into it. We just headlong into this thing. I think that's fine. Well, I loved it. I liked it a lot, too. Yeah. You Okay, what didn't you like? What bothered you? Um, you know, like nothing. Uh, my, I, I liked it. I did. I really did. Actually, Re- really was a big fan of it. Um, and I, pr- I need to go see it again. Well, um, but like the, yeah. the, but like I will say that I've been receptive to the criticism about it in terms of uh, Tarantino's uh, perceived politics through like or whatever he seems to be sort of condemning or advocating in the film um and i think one of the and look i think there's a lot to say about just viscerally enjoying something and who gives a shit but i will say i have a terrible time i think um not being swayed by critics and criticism and friends and family when it comes to talking about art um I can I can come out of something and go I love it and then have you know a few hour <laughs> and, and a half long conversation. <laughs> I don't hate it at all. Um, but I, do, I will say when you ask me like what I don't like about it, I think there's some I think there's some credibility to the fact that like <laughs> it seems to me that it's it's a bit of a movie and you brought this up in your email where he's sort of condemning the hippie movement a little bit. Um, but he's also mixing Manson up with like the rest of the hippies, but Manson's movement was a white supremacist movement, you know, <laughs> like that was his whole thing. He well, was trying I to mean, incite a race I war think and that, and they made it all about like TV stars <clears throat> and like consumerism and t- let's take down the capitalist b- bourgeois pigs. And it was like, no, it was more to incite a war between whites and blacks. Well, like that's not really true. I mean, I, I it's it's hard to like get into the whole like helter-skelter the whole philosophy. helter skelter thing. Yeah, um, that was something that Bliosi, um hitched his wagon to to make it kind of more understandable for the jury. What was really going on there was that. Manson was burned by Terry Melcher, who is the son of Doris Day, who is a big record producer. Yeah, and uh, and best friends with like Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. That's and, right. Yeah, right. And um, so he Manson's apparently music sucks too. Oh yeah, terrible. The Karina Longworth episodes about <laughs> just his music, and then we're just yeah. compa- sorry to interrupt, but we no, no, compares no. and contrasts them to Moody Blues songs, and you just hear him stealing Moody Blues riffs. <laughs> right. That's right. Um, right. Uh, anyway, so partially him sending, uh, the, the clan or his, his family to Terry Melcher's old house was sort of, uh, sending a signal to Terry Melcher. But the, the thing it really was, was that, um, Bobby Beausoleil had committed a murder, um, he murdered Gary Hinman. Yeah. And what Manson was trying to do was do a copycat crime while Beausoleil was imprisoned so that the authorities would think that um, someone had struck again, then that whoever did that first thing 
um, had done the second thing while Bobby Beausoleil was in jail. So it was a method to get Bobby Beausoleil released. Though Manson did talk about those things, I don't think it was kind of a main thrust. It wasn't something, it it wasn't his main motivation for Helter Skelter. So here's a question, though. So uh, are you watching Mindhunter? I haven't watched it yet. So season two of Mindhunter is, is about that theory. And attempting. Well, to- it's not a theory; it's what happened. But go ahead. <laughs> I don't. Well, that's not what Tex says, and you know that's not what the, any of the family is really. If said. you look they- at what Tex has been saying for the last twenty years, that's uh-huh. that's what he says. Really? Yeah, and that that's he, what Susan Atkins said too. That they were trying to f- get him out of prison by it, making yeah. it seem like a copycat killing, right. and then he just happened to be preaching this helter skelter philosophy. It was something that he said, like, during his ramblings yeah. that um, someone told Bugliosi about, one of the family members yeah. told Bugliosi about, okay. and he was like, that's that's something we can use to hook the jury to get them to blame Manson, f- even For though this. he wasn't there. Right, right, right. Right. Um, which, you know, whatever, they, they did it, they deserve to be in prison, sure. you know. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, I would say in terms of the politics, it's not that Tarantino is... Uh, lamenting um it's not that he's lamenting this kind of rigid studio system and this kind of um if you want to call it conservative uh way of doing things it's just that he's documenting that this was this is what it was and these are the good things that came out of it and these are the bad things that came out of it yeah and um I think, like, it's interesting at the end, I think the hippies do sort of win because, you know, yeah. DiCaprio does wear the long hair. And he mm-hmm. does go method. Sure. Um, and, yeah, he you know, follows the hopper, like, that right, whole thing. Right, that's exactly yeah. right. Right. And you see, um, uh, you see Sharon Tate with bare feet, like the Manson girls, kind mm-hmm. of saying that, hey, she's a hippie too. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. he's kind of, you know, at the end... Like, she might he, like Paul Revere and the Raiders, but she's, that's right. you know, she's yeah. kind of a hippie too. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, I think that, you know, subtly he was saying, uh, you know, this is what this character is saying, but this isn't necessarily, you know, my point of view or the movie. Well, that's why I've always defended him for any of his characters, really, is like, I feel like he's a really smart guy. I mean, I right. love I loved it. I will say, like, at the end of that movie, I was like crying my fucking eyes out. Right. Me too. Oh, it, my and, God. And I didn't really know anybody else who was very, like, sad. But I fucking, uh, yeah, I, I had so many tears coming. Yeah. Um, I felt by, like, not showing it, it made it so much sadder and so much more right. respectful poignant. and poignant yeah. because it's like look at what the world could be right uh, that's right and, exactly and, and it's the same thing as he did in uh in inglorious bastards right like which right. i just watched the other day and that movie also starts with once upon a time dot 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 right in nazi occupied germany you know i, I was <clears throat> divided into chapters in the same way i mean it's you know so so much part of everything he's always been doing. I, I was actually yeah. surprised that people were surprised by the ending. I expected that. I did not. I totally expected that that's how it would end. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Or some form of that. Not I'm necessarily glad I, I'm the glad way I it didn't because when it didn't, I was so stoked. Yeah. It was pretty cool. I was so excited. As soon as he stumbled out of that house with that picture of margaritas, though. Right. It's a quick tangent. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw that movie immediately like went to El Coyote with a bunch of people. It's been, I did too. I went it's a couple been nights later. Packed yeah. there. Right. Casa's been packed there. Because <laughs> like, now Tarantino designed a margarita for them. And so they've got it on the sign out front that they're like home of the Tarantino margarita. And then awesome. and then 
two nights in a row i had separate people say can we come over and listen to the sound system and make um blended ice margaritas right and uh frozen margaritas i guess is probably the way to say it and uh i was like sure whatever yeah and uh and my friend graham came over with all this shit and he was like four people were behind me in line (laughs) buying limes ice and margarita mix i think he started a margarita revolution this summer well you know like (laughs) i I was here when um pulp fiction came out Uh and you couldn't go to a house party or any kind of party for the next five years where someone didn't put on the pulp fiction soundtrack yeah i mean it was ubiquitous it Mm -hmm. was everywhere and and it had this effect on certainly the culture of la and i I, as you're saying i I feel that there's a similar thing happening yeah i can't remember who tweeted it but just somebody said like once upon a time in hollywood is the perfect depiction of a fantasy where you can drive around la without traffic Right. Yeah. It's great. It's just, yeah. And I I mean uh and, and scenes like Or no, um, it was an alternate universe where you Right, alternate get universe because I don't know that it was ever like that. No, I don't think so. Um but I loved that. I I heard people complaining about the the scene where Brad Pitt is driving and you see him drive all the Love way from it. the hills. It's yeah, Paranormal to City. the Van Nuys movie oh, theater. That's great. Yeah. It's so great. Yeah. No, I was a big fan. I it, made, it was, to me it was just like the type of movie you never wanted to end. Like, I could right. have just sat in there. It was a cool universe to hang out in. Would love to hang out in that. Like, yeah. Like, just forever. Like, just what a breezy, like, fun romp with so much, like, fucked up weird tension throughout. Like, the Bruce Dern stuff was great. Yeah, the, like, the scenes at Spawn Ranch, um, he is not a fan of Hitchcock, um, Tarantino, <laughs> but I thought they were Hitchcockian. The the rising tension. I didn't know he wasn't a fan of Hitchcock. He doesn't like Hitchcock at all. Mm-hmm. He said some he said some outrageous things. Really? Like, he likes the Gus Van Sant version of Psycho better than I've the heard original. that, yeah. <laughs> and he likes Psycho 2 better than Psycho 1. That's pretty insane. Well, he's he's a little schlock. Right, right, yeah. yeah he probably likes he probably likes uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis like Ten Thousand Maniacs better, or you know, Bucket of Blood or it's whatever. Like, did you read the Did you read the Orson Welles the the, the Josh or the Carp book about Orson Welles about his last movie that they like turned into? The I haven't. No, no. Apparently, I think Bogdanovich says this when Orson was like living at his house in the eighties or, or late seventies or whatever. Anytime this movie Ice Station Zebra would come on, <laughs> it was like Taron. It was, it was Orson Welles' favorite movie. That's awesome. Like he'd rile up, get everybody to be like, Ice Station Zebra's on, you know? Great. Peter, Sybil. Yeah. Come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are we okay there? Uh, let's find out. Yep. Okay. Um, uh, so Tar- Tarantino also was a really big advocate of Woody Allen's movie Anything Else, starring Jason Biggs and Christina Ricci. Oh, he likes that I, one? I like that one a lot, That's actually. Funny. Yeah. I, I haven't seen it. It's great. But can we talk about Bruce Dern? I yeah. thought he was brilliant. He was great. Because you know, originally, yeah. Burt Reynolds was going to play that character. I do remember that, yeah. Which I can see. Sure. But there's no way he would have been nearly as good as Bruce Dern's Dern. just believable wherever, whatever you have him fucking playing. He is like, so anytime great. Anytime he's in anything, you're like, so great. you forget that it's Bruce Dern yeah. within a second of seeing him. Yeah, really like an underrated actor, I think. Because you don't so hear him like he doesn't, he's not brought up in the same breath as like the De Niro's and stuff, but. Yeah. I mean, I really think, like, uh, uh, I'm sorry that Burt Reynolds had to go, uh-huh. but if it had to happen, I'm glad it happened and before with, he filmed. Before Bruce Dern. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
you know, uh, another just a great shout out of you guys wanting to listen to something else is Bruce Dern's episode of Gilbert Gottfried's podcast. Oh, yeah. On another level. <laughs> so good. Really doesn't hold much back. Yeah. yeah. He, he Well, he tells that story about um, whatever happened to baby Jane and yeah. Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Yeah. And um, Joan Crawford shows up and Olivia de Havilland, who is replacing mm-hmm. her, is sitting there. She's like, why, Livy? What are you doing here? And Betty Davis goes, she's taking your role, cunt. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of good stories in that episode. Yeah, Bruce Stern has lived yeah. an amazing fucking life. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of, like, uh, oh God... A scene that just really moved me also was uh, the Rolling Stones out of time is playing. Mm-hmm. And you're, there's that montage of all of the neon being turned on in L.A. Oh, it's great. And then getting you ready see it? to go Did to you see it in a specific theater? Or I saw it at the um, at the Dome. Yeah. I saw it at the Dome, too. When yeah. the Dome lights came on, did everybody clap? Of course. I wish I had seen it at the <laughs> Bruin, though. That's sort of where I wish I was. Right, that and was pretty awesome, Who could have thought too, that'd be yeah. the fucking theater? Right. Shout out, yeah. Yeah, there were a yeah. bunch of good places to see it, I think. I think, like, the Bruin and the Dome, and I think also, like, the Vista. The Vista, I think the lights come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so great. I um, love it. I love it so much. <laughs> I remember the the biggest moment like that I can remember is uh, the movie Speed. Yeah, I was in you know Grauman's Chinese Theater mm-hmm. watching it, and no one knew this was coming up. But at the very end, uh, it, it, the the climax is in the newly built subway, mm-hmm. and it's not finished, so it, it jets up right through this the street, um, right in front of Grauman's Chinese Theater. Oh, really? Lands right in front, kind of like the end of Blazing Saddles. Yeah, right. Exactly. That yeah, would be yeah. a perfect movie to see there. Right. Movies, movies that take place in the theater, in the places you're watching them, are really incredible. Like I'm not. You, I've said this before, and I'll take it to my grave. But I'm not a huge Stanley Kubrick fan by any means. But being able to watch The Shining in that hotel, I think, would be otherworldly cool. I don't think I could do it. You think, I think be The Shining afraid? is yeah, I think I would. And I don't believe in anything like in yeah. terms of like uh scary like ghosts or anything, but I still just psychologically I wouldn't be able to do it. It wouldn't happen. I really? Do it. No. You, even with a bunch of people? Mm-mm. Like you're just sitting in a theater. I guess I guess if if, if there were a bunch That's of people. That's what they do. Maybe, they do screenings. Yeah. They have like a film festival there and Fuck. then they play The Shining. There? Yeah. I can't remember what it's called. It's like I a Stanley not, Hotel I, or something mm, or the, I don't yeah. think so. Yeah, that I think I get really too fun. fucking freaked out. The Shining is the scariest, like the most unnerving movie ever made. Yeah, that's probably true. I think yeah. I can barely watch it. Not John. Did you know I have a bit of a temper? Yeah, I've I've seen it come out once in a while. Yeah, um, <laughs> we had a t- big technical glitch. I'm getting pretty. Uh, I'm angry. You're pissed. I'm pretty fucking pissed. Anyway, we need to do this with a goddamn engineer or something. Yeah, really. All right, so go ahead. Well, I, I one of one aspect of the movie that I, I really appreciated was when for years when when you would read um, Vince Bugliosi's Helter Skelter or when um, you know Karina Longworth would do her podcast, you would hear Tex Watson's you know words to um, Sharon Tate and everyone in the house. I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. And it's quite chilling and disturbing. I'm so happy that Tarantino took that same line and made it 
fucking ridiculous and pathetic and every goddamn person in the in, in the theater laughed at Tex Watson and I hope he fucking hears about it. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. That was so satisfying. Um, to, to, to have that moment of catharsis where you're laughing at this fucking asshole instead of being chilled or scared by him, you yeah, know? Yeah, totally. And, 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 and to that end, I think that since I moved here, um, and, and since it happened, the, the specter of the Tate LaBianca killings has, you know, hung over Los Angeles for as long as, uh, as, long as I've been here. Mm-hmm. It's, it's always been here. It's always something that's on people's minds, especially people who, you know, lived here at the time. And then everyone who read Helter Skelter, which is everyone that lives here. Um, and, and I feel like Tarantino, in some way, he can't erase what happened, but I think he has helped to exercise some of those demons. Well, yeah, he took, he did such a great job i thought of taking those kids basically who i think everybody's terrified by and rightly so for a lot of reasons right and and as you're saying turn them into the big fucking joke where they're like idiot teenagers from any fucking era that's right where they're just bravado and bullshit and yeah they happen to do something horrible but yeah you're right it's so cathartic to yeah, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do some devil shit. I don't know. He was like, "No, nah, I was stupider than that." Or yeah, his name or whatever. He's like, right, yeah, it was, right. It was worse than that. Uh, yeah, and 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 you know, it's it's good that Deborah Tate um, saw it and approves of it. And oh, I didn't hear that. Yeah, she loved it. She great. thinks it's great. Yeah. So it's just something in a way. I think he's provided a service to the town, which he has you know certainly Obviously, done before yeah, right. um with his great uh movie theater mm-hmm. and i i just i have such great regard for him and and i think that he for me he definitely accomplished something positive with this movie yeah so um i'll i'll read you know i was kind of bringing up criticisms sure, of it yeah. um i don't necessarily agree with all of them my friend um who shall remain uh nameless um texted me uh, essentially what his kind of issues with the, the film were. And I would love to hear your rebuttal. Mm-hmm. And I'm playing devil's advocate right, right. Yeah, here. Sure. Um, okay. Let me just, let me get it right. I found the film tedious. Aesthetically, it's nothing new. And I take issue with almost everything about the way Tarantino views the world, Hollywood, and other people. <laughs> I wouldn't call it actively bad. I'd call it actively boring, and its message is bad. I think A.O. Scott is spot on when he calls Tarantino a conservative. There are other words I might use. I think he is fundamentally affectionate towards a world and ideology I think is fundamentally wrong. Then I said, you know, fuck you. You're a piece of shit. No, I didn't. I didn't say <laughs> I started talking about how I love John Ford. <laughs> um, and he was like, it's not your fault, but your affections are misplaced. And Quentin at least clearly doesn't see the objects of his affection for what they are. Um, the film openly makes fun of Natalie Wood's murder and then makes her killer the hero who stops the dirty liberals from destroying the white misogynistic golden age of Hollywood. A golden age it sincerely wants you to be nostalgic about. This isn't satire, it's propaganda. There's a big difference between torching Hitler and torching an underage girl under the influence of a murderous cult leader. Tarantino doesn't see a difference. Then I said, I don't know if Robert Wagner murdered <laughs> Natalie Wood, but that's a separate discussion. And then... Um, I said, I also think those Manson kids are completely responsible for Sharon Tate's death. (laughs) And yeah, he's a bad guy, but so were they. Um, 
And then uh, he was just like, it really depends on what point you can take, like, seeing someone's face smashed into a television pole. Like a girl. Like well, a that's always girl. been his aesthetic. I mean, yeah. what are you going to do? Yeah. But same I, with Lynch, right? Like, that's a criticism Lynch exactly. gets all the time. Is sure. He, not only does he write, like, phenomenal female roles, but he also puts them in horrible situations. Right. Um, he puts them in, well, which is why I think um, Siskel and Ebert gave Blue Velvet a bad review because they didn't like what he did to the actress Isabella Rossellini. Sure. And I mean, I would argue that, you know, she was a grown woman and she was fine with it. Yeah, and it's entirely uh, the point that you're not supposed to enjoy that. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. yes. Um, but he would say that, he would argue that uh, Tarantino's uh, idea of enjoyment is harmful and he is consciously trying to weaponize the language of cinema against people and ideas that he <laughs> shouldn't be because he wants to maintain a status quo that is favorable to him. Well, I mean, I, I just think there's so much to unpack there um I, I think like for example the the pit character um cliff um he may or may not have killed his wife we don't know but he's sort of um he's sort of keeping himself in a sort of purgatory punishing himself yeah feeling guilty living in kind of squalid conditions sure. where he's manservant to leonardo dicaprio and never kind of has never kind of allows himself to enjoy and have his own life yeah um and um, I think that, like, it, I think the notion that uh, that Tarantino is advocating a conservative point of view, I think, is just crazy because I think that Tarantino uh, appreciates some aspects of the golden age of Hollywood and the studio systems, and he could see the positive things because you know he likes the movies that they produced and likes the actors that they produced and things like that. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's a sweet lament, and I think at the end he is saying this might be true, but but time moves on and we have to move on. And I think that it's also kind of about the zeitgeist of of what Tarantino himself is facing. That you know the kinds of movies he used to make, you know, with the end word and everything else are no longer in favor and Tarantino has to make that adjustment kind of in the way that we see Rick Dalton does at the end because Rick Dalton is um, you know this western star who is very set in his ways hates hippies the whole nine I mean, yards he's essentially like Clint Eastwood or, or right, Burt exactly. Reynolds or right. who, pick your poison one of right. these guys yeah. well, well I mean I mean, th that's the, the thing with those TV western guys is that half of them went on to never be heard of again yeah. they, they just became obscure and just died in obscurity and half of them became the biggest stars of the 70s totally. I mean Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood and any number of guys you know who were the leads of these westerns and it's a about that moment in Rick Dalton's life where he is is making he's he's trying to save himself from the um from the fate of you know dying out in obscurity which I think Quentin Tarantino relates to and he does it by listening to this girl who's a method actress getting into character agreeing to wear the long hair and you know the hippie-ish yeah, manners or, yeah. right, right and 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 um you know, he has that great experience where he is, uh, he's acting for the first time. He's actually acting. Yeah. He's not just performing and it's as worth, a movie And it's star. worth mentioning that the method thing was really the hippie. It was a hippie thing. Right. It was a hippie thing. It was a yeah. liberal thing. It was a progressive thing. Yeah. So he's, and, and you know, who is the most progressive filmmaker, ironically, at that time, uh -huh. is Roman Polanski. Sure. So at the end, we both save Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring and, and uh, Abigail... Um, 
Folger and, uh-huh. and Wojtek Frykowski, but we're also, I think, setting up Rick Dalton to have a Clint Eastwood uh, A-list career. Totally. I think he is going to get in with Polanski. I think he's going to make artistically satisfying films in the way Clint Eastwood did. Yeah. And I think that that is what Tarantino was talking about. I don't think it's a conservative message. I think it's a progressive message. That's fantastic. Yeah. I think that's a hell of a rebuttal. Yeah. Um, to my friend who's not here to defend himself. <laughs> uh <laughs> Oh, no. he ha- I think he hates me, that guy. I don't have any idea. Um, <laughs> no, I don't think he no, does. I mean, I, I only met so. him for like yeah. 15 minutes. No, um, <laughs> no it's, I think, you know, it's, uh, the reason I bring that up is because I felt like there were a lot of arguments on Twitter and stuff that felt uh, sort of what he was saying, but I felt like he was well-spoken about it. Right. Um, oh, no, he's definitely articulate and well-spoken. Yeah. But but I'll tell you, I've been um, heartened to see the reaction of millennials and, sure. and younger people that they are embracing and liking the movie. I thought they would hate it yeah. because of... Of the Me Too stuff, and just because they'd be bored, I but th- apparently, like they're they're finding things in it that they like. I think we're finding in, in this time too, too, with Chappelle's new special and stuff too, that people are um, a little uh, feeling a, a bit restricted by the sort of mandates of how we behave and the art we make, right? Um, well, it's the and, pendulum that, the, that yeah, swings back and forth, exactly. ever, and it yeah. always will, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I think people are just like really digging it. But I also don't think like I don't think like my friend that there's anything in this movie that's truly I- insanely offensive or upsetting or anything like that to me personally. I I don't know. I mean, I could maybe understand like Bruce Lee's family being upset. <laughs> like, right. Right. Um, yeah. But uh but for the most part I think uh I think it's great. Yeah. 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 Um Do you notice it do you, did you ever see Fight Club? Of course. Yeah, I, I think there's like some Fight Club things going on there. Like at the end when they're both on the airplane together uh-huh. and Brad Pitt is wearing those kind of sunglasses that yeah, yeah. were the exact sunglasses he wore. And uh-huh. then at the end, he's dressed exactly the way the fight his uh, oh, Tyler yeah, Durden really? is dressed. Yeah. So I think like in the way that uh, Tyler Durden was the other half of Edward Norton, mm-hmm. uh, his, you know, hidden, you know, the, the sure. real yeah. you know, guy inside, I yeah. think they're also playing with that a little bit with Rick Dalton and Cliff. I also really loved to see... I like any director who's very self-referential, Like, and I love that Tarantino's finally gotten to a point where um, not only <laughs> is he referencing other films, but now he's had such an insanely great career that he's referencing himself. So there's like the Jackie Brown moment in right, the airport. The, the and, uh, mosaic tiles. Yeah, and- <laughs> there's some other stuff I can't I can't remember right now. Well, of course, the, uh, the flamethrower. The flamethrower's uh, huge, yeah, Inglorious, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, all in all, really great movie. Um, which I guess, what kind of do you have more to say about it? Or um, um, I, I, I mean, when we talk about uh, shampoo, it'll certainly come up. That's so. what I mean. I was yeah. just about to say, like, I feel like this is a good moment to sort of segue to um, Hal Ashby's movie Shampoo, which we watched together, um, and maybe you can tell everybody why we went with went with shampoo well while i was watching once upon a time in hollywood uh one thing really struck me uh which was there is a scene with um jc brig talking to michelle phillips at the playboy mansion um and an actress playing michelle phillips and tarantino wants us to know that's michelle phillips yeah, so he, he actually puts, her, puts name. her name which he doesn't do for anyone else right um so uh 
a couple days later, I watched Shampoo again, and sure enough, a character based on Jay Sebring, who was played by Warren Beatty, is talking to the actual real-life Michelle Phillips, who is playing herself. And if you look at the two side-by-side, they're framed exactly the same. Sure. And in one, there's like a big ornate cabinet between them, and in the other, there's like a big ornate fountain between them. Like, it is clearly a referencing. Yeah. And um, I, I think he did take a lot of uh, inspiration. Tarantino took a lot of inspiration from Hal Ashby, um, uh, particularly in that party scene. I okay. think that the Playboy scene yeah. is a lot like uh, the scene in um, in Shampoo, which actually, I mean, is a pretty deep scene. I think like it starts out as like this kind of decadent kind of uh, sex party, and uh-huh. and turns in like at the end, Warren like Beatty is basically show. running yeah. through hell. You yeah. know. <laughs> so let's let's talk about what the plot of Shampoo yeah, is. Yeah. So um, it takes place in November of 1968, right? Um, election day. It, election day. So the whole movie takes place in a day. Yep. Um, and uh, it's uh, Nixon versus Humphrey. Okay, great. And, and so, Nixon wins. And so, it's spoiler a, alert! Spoiler alert! <laughs> Nixon wins. It's not an alternate. Nixon act. No, wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but uh, essentially, the plot is uh, Warren Beatty plays a Jay Sebrig type. Um, of, he's a f- hairstylist on the beginnings of his journey as like a famous hairstylist right. potentially he's got a lot of clients he wants to open up his own business and he's very good friends with a very Sharon Tate looking Goldie Hawn right, right? A, a Sharon Tate like Goldie Hawn who is constantly talking about hearing things outside and having dreams where people are trying to trap her and tie her up and, and tie her up so yeah I, I don't think people realize it at the time but the um uh, the the sawmill of uh, the Manson family is definitely I think running in the background of shampoo although it is never explicitly stated I think one of the reasons for that is that at the time I think most people thought that the Warren Beatty character was actually based on John Peters mm. who had been Barbara Streisand's hairdresser I see. and at that point had become you know producer of her movies and other movies and became one of the most powerful people in Hollywood. But it actually, I don't think, is based on him. I think it is uh, based on Jay. I will say just watching it now for the first time with that in mind, it's so clearly... I really should have not told you beforehand and see if you picked it up. I would have. Absolutely. No question about it. Because she she eventually gets with a guy who is the stand-in for Roman Polanski. She lives up in the hills. She's dating a Polanski type. It's fucking really on the nose yeah um, it is on the nose but uh you were saying at the time nobody really knew so and i don't think if you look at the reviews from 1976 i don't think anyone brought up the manson family but that i think is a major thing when you're watching it now especially if you watch it after sure you watch once upon a time in hollywood well and then so it's also written by warren Beatty along with robert, robert Town, Town, who wrote chinatown which is directed right. by roman polanski so i asked you middle of the movie yeah. i was like this is very strange actually to do a movie sort of vaguely about you know this guy that he his wife that he worked that Robert Town had worked with who got right. slaughtered by a bunch of fucked up teenagers but you know Robert Town hated or, or well and that's uh, what hated he said. Roman Polanski and so that's very interesting to me um and here's the reason <laughs> yeah. why um the end of Chinatown in Town's original script um Jack Nicholson saves Evelyn Mulray. Okay. Uh, the um, um, Faye Dunaway character. Yeah. And um, 
in the finished version, the version that the ver- version that Polanski wanted to do, she is murdered mm-hmm. by her incestuous father, who then takes who the- then takes her daughter okay. with him, and it's it's probably the darkest ending of any Hollywood movie I can think of. It's insanely fucked up because not only is she dead, but the horror of the molestation is it's continuing. Gonna, gonna continue, yeah. And forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. That doesn't quite cut. Yeah. Like, I'm not happy. Yeah, with I just that. saw humanity, like, the, right. you know, the, what it's really all about. Right. And, yeah. and, and, you know, uh, it's speculated and it's probably true that the reason that Polanski wanted that ending was because just a couple years before his beautiful pregnant wife was murdered in such a horrible yeah, fashion. Yeah, he had a different worldview now. And that's how he saw the world. Yeah. And Robert Town thought it that is not the movie that I sign on to write. He he threatened to have his name taken off. He felt very strongly about it, and I don't think the two ever talked again. Well, Robert Town was wrong in that situation because that's one of the greatest endings in all of cinema. It's a very yeah. memorable ending. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just think a happy ending for, to that. Everything that we saw precedent to that is right. not great. the evil yeah. and corruption just in every aspect of yeah. society. And it's LA, and it never went away. You right. know, it's bad. And it's I get, fitting. Yeah. I definitely side a little bit more with Polanski here, which is not a sentence that I've thought I'd ever say out loud. <laughs> right. <laughs> Except but, but we're actually, talking about his movies. But I don't think yeah. it's like Town was out to get him, because in Shampoo, the Polanski character is actually pretty, you know... Sure. Uh, he, he, he's banal. He's not... He's, he's, not, banal. Yeah, he's, not, nothing, he's not that interesting. He's really not. <laughs> um, now, you know who my favorite part of the, this whole film was is, is uh, Jack Warden. Is that his name? Jack Warden's an excellent character. Absolutely actor, yeah. hilarious. Yeah. So funny. Uh, just really fantastic. Now, what do you think about the movie? Do you really like it? I love it. I think it's brilliant in its way. I, I think it's a small, brilliant movie. I don't think it's like a big, huge, like big scale brilliant, but I think it's like a small, perfect little gem. So he, Al Ashby did this right after Harold and Maude. Harold and Maude, yeah. Um, I, I will say it had me like 85%, and then, and then the ending I just felt like really didn't... Um... I think the ending's great because... Well, I, I think the point of having the Manson thing in there is that time is running out for uh, the Warren Beatty character. Yeah. And that's driven home by the fact that the owner of the hair salon's son was killed in an accident. And then you see Warren Beatty driving his motorcycle crazy. Like, in the very next scene, he could easily have been killed in the same way. Right. Um, and, And I think what all that was driving home was that... Warren Beatty is not going to live forever no matter how many girls he fucks. Mm -hmm. And he realizes too late that um, he wants to be with the Julie Christie character. Um, But that's... So that was... Okay, so that's essentially my issue with it is, you know, he's got all these different women um, and it feels... And, you know, potentially this is on purpose, but I wish then maybe they had made that a little clearer. Um... But he sort of arbitrarily sort of lands on one, I felt. Um, like, he was just like, oh, I like this girl. No, I think for me, yeah. through the whole movie, it was clear that she was the one. It, I, I, I never got the feeling that his relationship with the Goldie Hawn character was all that deep. Or obviously with the... Um, Wife of the guy. Faye... Um, um, her her name is escaping right, but the wife of Jack Warden. So who plays um, her? Um, Faye. Um, oh, I thought that was the girl who won the Oscar. 
Yeah, yeah, she did. She's the one who plays the wife of Jack Warden's character? She is the mother of um, Carrie Fisher. Yes, okay, and so what's her name? Faye Grant. No, the actress's name. Yeah, that's it, right? Oh, but you were like, oh, I love her, and she's Yeah, great. I think she's great. You were I like, that's her. who I'd be if I were a woman? Yeah. I thought her name was like Leah something. Right? No, no. Oh, really? It's Faye Grant. Yeah, okay. Well, I believe, I I believe so you. Funny. She is pretty funny, but what's she getting an Oscar for in it? She's, <laughs> she's like, so funny. You know what? Go back. She was for like a go little back, bit. Like, no, she's so great. Go back and watch <laughs> the scene where she meets Goldie Hawn for the first time. That scene is And hilarious. the look on her it, that face. That part's like, very funny. Oh my God, this is my competition. No, that it's part's so funny. Great. I just was curious, like, who... And look, I'm not saying we should take her Oscar away or anything. You know, I'm not like that type of guy. Yeah, yeah. I'm just a little very... Like... Um, I thought it was a very. I think I think Beatrice Strait winning an Oscar for Network is more egregious. Oh, she's so good in Network. But I mean, she's, she's, in, in, she's it in it for, it for like minute. three minutes. Yeah, but it's literally that scene. <laughs> it's like uh, with Anthony Hopkins was Hannibal Lecter for like all of fourteen minutes in that movie. Did you know yeah, that? I didn't. Well, I mean, I've heard that, yeah. but I didn't know after I watched it. They I would have said he's in it They a lot. sprinkle him throughout, though. You know. Yeah. You you have one great one minute scene fourteen <laughs> times over an hour and a half. You know, it's pretty good. Um, so you don't like shampoo? No, I do like shampoo. Yeah. Um, I was just saying that, like, I I was really enjoying it, and then um, it feels like it's building up to this big emotional mm-hmm. ending that just didn't catch me. Well, yeah. I mean, I I think for me because I've seen it a few times too. Yeah. I think I just understand that it's the Julie Christie, and, and Julie Christie was his girlfriend at the time. Okay. So maybe he was trying to convince himself sure. to stop give up the life. Her. Yeah. Right. Um. And uh, and 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 it's too late for him, and mm-hmm. just like you know, it was too late for Jay Sebrig. I mean, he, you know, he's gonna die one day, and we, if we're paying attention, know that that day is coming pretty fucking soon. He doesn't even have a year left. Sure, right. So um, I think the ending is pretty powerful and and sad. Yeah, totally. I mean, I will say, Beatty's great in it. Everybody's great in it. Goldie yeah. Hawn's super funny in well, it. Well, like you were saying, who could play that part other than Warren Beatty? Because we know. Well, I was saying that it's well, the real case that he. So I was saying that, like, yeah, <laughs> like I don't think today you could write a movie, even if you did it with, you know, who's like Tony Kushner, whoever you want to, you know, say like one of the best working screenwriters working, like you starring you. Playing a version of yourself where every girl is into you and you have sex with everybody. <laughs> right. And that's honestly the first two acts. Right. That's right. <laughs> then act three, he changes his mind and it's like, oh, I'm really into this girl. Or is you're saying that's throughout. You can kind of sense it. I couldn't. Right. I was like, yeah. oh, it's, it could be any of these. If you ever movies. happen to see it again one day, I think you'll see where they have kind of chemistry and you could see that sure. yeah. it's it's more meant to be than it Either is. Either way, it's, let's say Justin Theroux sat down with Tony Kushner and wrote a movie where Justin Theroux plays. Who's a heartthrob? There are, we don't really even have Brad any. Pitt? Maybe it's sure, Pitt, yeah. Let's uh, <laughs> let's say Brad Pitt <laughs> does a movie where he plays like a version of himself and well, everybody wants to fuck him. It. it would yeah, be ridiculous. Well, and that's funny too, you know? Like they made right. it funny, right? But, and then he gets this comeuppance at the end. But it's it, you know. But and and if if you read Peter Viscine's great uh, biography of Warren Beatty, star, I mean that that's actually uh, toned down as to what Warren Beatty was actually like. He would have sex literally with every woman he met, and even women <laughs> women that you wouldn't think. Like he would find attractiveness 
in, um, you know, the woman at the car rental agency. Literally, he would start flirting with them and invite them home. Right. Like, it, you know, not to denigrate car rental agency women, but I'm just saying he didn't only go after, like, powerful actresses. He went after... Everybody. Every day. And, you know, I've heard even guys. I mean, I don't sure. know. But, like, uh, I think he's a really fascinating figure certainly in in hollywood history and and that book is is an excellent one and he's um it it also describes like his filmmaking process which was just insane and it's amazing that he ever got anything done because he was so particular and and i think maybe it was even a thing where he was just afraid to put anything out there because he was so insecure so that was the reason for all the delays and stuff and why he never really got all that much done like what two movies a decade or something yeah, like that right but um yeah i, I think he uh he was a, a very interesting uh, actor and and probably a better producer than an actor but absolutely insane and he's still yeah. around yeah he's and still the oscar around. goes to moonlight yeah yeah i didn't see that <laughs> you didn't see it no is it good you mean the movie moonlight or you didn't see him and faye dunaway give the oscar to the wrong people oh that i saw <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'd hope uh that was like as good as television gets Poor Faye. Poor the fucking cast and crew of Moonlight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was... I mean, I had to turn... Uh, I was watching on the computer. Yeah. Uh, on my laptop. I think I just flipped it closed when I realized it was going on. I just couldn't you got, watch what was happening. You cringe yeah. too much. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah, all in all, no, I do, I do, I do like shampoo, and I, I would say it's probably worth watching, especially this year under the, you know, yeah. the, it makes a great double feature with Once Upon a Time. I think so not too. only is it kind of for a good chunk of it like a fun slice of life, L.A. in the '60s movie, mm-hmm. um, with a hell of a soundtrack. I mean, hell, you yeah. got the rights to some Beatles songs, Pet Jimi sounds, Hendrix, who's Hendrix. not in any movie ever except Absol- this. One. That's it. That's <laughs> yeah, the only I Hendrix. So, yeah. That's insane. Um, yeah, all in all, like I would say, definitely worth a watch. You can almost look at it as a prequel because yeah, totally. You know, he winds up because you know Steve McQueen makes that whole speech about. Uh, Let me tell you about this guy. Yeah. They were dating and then they broke up and then she got with Roman, but he, he's in love. He with won't her leave still, her side. And, yeah, right. So you could see the events of Shampoo possibly leading into that. Totally. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So That's cool. That's great. Yeah. Ah, well, I don't know, buddy. What do you think? I think that's it. I mean, I've said all I have to say about these two movies for the time being, but, I mean, if you haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yet, I, I would get thee to a theater and see it, and do see it in theater. Don't do it, wait. Do you see it in a theater. For yeah, sure. and 35mm yeah. uh, or 70mm yeah. if you can. Totally. I'm actually surprised he's not playing shampoo at his theater. Seems like the perfect thing to put up he in He has. I bet he will. I think currently it's just... His Once movie. Upon a Time playing yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, I think eventually they would probably put it on a double feature. Ugh, they're selling these shirts there that look so cool. It's like Spawn oh, really? Ranch crew, <laughs> and I want one so bad, and they keep selling out like within an hour. That's awesome. Yeah, they look great. All right, well, thanks, everybody, for bearing with us. Yeah, we thanks a, for we tuning in. We had a hiatus, in. you know. I would hope we do one again soon, but, yeah, we'll you know, we back. just keep saying that. So let's just, yeah. you know, we'll just do it or <laughs> we'll we do won't. It we we'll do see. It. Yeah. When we see a movie that, that moves we feel us. is worth talking about, then we'll find <laughs> Which means next year next or the year, year after. Yeah, once in a while, a good movie comes around, and then we'll pick another movie that kind of goes with it. All right. Exactly. Well, thanks for coming over, John. And I hope you, uh, 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 you know, end up in charge of the Universal Archive or something. Thank you, sir. Yeah. And I hope you wind up, um, I don't know, head writer on Saturday Night Live. That's all right. Yeah. Yeah. I hope we both don't get murdered. Right. Or hit by a car. 
Bye. Bye.